lot of people were saying that I was crazy. Mostly my colleagues, my ex-colleagues, my friends. They said, look, you've got this amazing job. It's well paid. And now you want to start your own company and compete for the same clients and do like you're you're nuts. You absolutely shouldn't be doing that. You're listening to Audio Life, the podcast that tells your story in your words. I'm your host, Matthew Schnur, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Gafor Masood. Gafor, welcome to Audio Life. Well, thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Gafor, uh, just to give you uh, the highest level of background, uh, you're an MBA candidate. Uh, by the time you're hearing this, you probably will have your MBA. You have a technology background with 15 years in the technology space, and then you've done fun stuff like launch a dessert brand called Swoon, and currently working on other initiatives. So, Gafor, welcome. Uh, why don't we dive right in? And let's get started with the most foundational part of it all. Uh, when were you born and where? Okay, interesting. So, despite my complexion, a very interesting birth location. I was born in a city called Derry in the heart of Northern Ireland back in 1984. So, you know, I'm 30, 38 years old. And quite an interesting uh, story for that. My father, who was working in Saudi Arabia as a gastronologist, he was asked to come to help run a hospital during the 1970s in Northern Ireland because there was a lot of war and troubles between uh, the United Kingdom and Ireland. Sure. And as a result, there was a lot of bullet wounds, let's say, or stomach wounds. And they thought that his expertise in abdominal surgery would be of help. So he posted up with my mother for one year there, and he just fell in love with the people from both sides of the community. Hmm. And yeah, 60, 70 years later, he has seven children, and uh, I'm one of them. Wow, one of seven. Uh, I'd love to know if there's any particular meaning behind your name. Well, actually, it means forgiving in Arabic which is quite nice. But surprisingly, the name is not a very modern name or a very cool name. When my mom named me, she had this idea. She wanted to maybe call me Junaid or something else. But she had this uh, dream and she felt like it was a very spiritual dream that connected with her. And they told her to name her son Gafur. So she went with that. It was a very compelling thing. She's not so interested in like woo-wah, things like that, but she felt like it really spoke to her that evening. And so I was called Gafur. Yeah. That's great. I'm curious about, uh, you've referenced it already, um, your father coming from Saudi Arabia with the troubles in Northern Ireland and to help out there, uh, your name meaning uh, forgiving and falling in love with the people. Um, what did the conflict or did the conflict shape any of your early life or early memories? That's that's a great question, Matt. And to be honest, I was quite fortunate. My older brothers and sisters, so I'm the second youngest, I think they were exposed to a lot of it. However, growing up in the 80s and 90s, it was still prevalent. Things that I think are quite uh, normal, but when I explain to other people, they're like, no, that's definitely not normal. You know, we had like armored Land Rovers, military officers, machine guns uh, all around the city. I used to think they were super cool as a kid. You know, I see these like kind of armored tanks and trucks and everything. And I was like, wow, this is so awesome. It's like a movie. I enjoyed seeing the army personnel with the machine guns. 
it's only when I started going a little older to really kind of grasp what was kind of happening. Every other week or month, there was a bomb scare or even indeed a bomb attack. And this is going to sound kind of uh, macabre or, or maybe a bit bizarre, but I actually have positive memories of those times. Hmm. It was always, it felt like exciting. You know, you're oblivious as a kid, so you don't really understand the gravity of it. Right. And, you know, one of my fondest memories was actually a toy store. It was part of a larger department store, but it got bombed. And as a result, all the goods were fire damaged or smoke damaged, but they were completely intact. And I remember that Christmas, they had this thing called a bomb blast sale. This bomb blast sale was one of the greatest childhood memories of my life because myself and a lot of the kids in school, we all got amazing Christmas presents from this place, heavily discounted. You know, we were with modest means. And so to get all these gifts as a result of this attack, it's kind of a weird thing. But like myself and my peers around my age, we always kind of look fondly at that. Okay. And yeah. And luckily for me, as I grew older, there was a peace treaty signed and there's a lot less troubles now and both sides of the community are right. doing very well. Good. Um, that's uh, it's quite, <laughs> quite a, a unique memory, I guess, of uh, something that most people who don't live through it uh, don't expect to see um, sort of the joy in some cases that can come out of some pretty terrible situations. I'm curious, uh, as you look back and as those were sort of the foundational years, have your beliefs about human nature changed because of uh, that upbringing and, and where you sit now? Wow, that's a quite a deep and philosophical question. And um, as a child, I grew up in the Protestant area, which is the British area. Interestingly, Derry City is split uh, by a bridge and a river by two sides. And one side is predominantly Protestant or British, and the other side is predominantly Catholic or nationalist Irish. And because I grew up on the Protestant side of the water, as a young age, I often found myself more friends with the British associated people. And I often looked at the other guys as the enemy. Okay, so these guys are the enemy, we're the friends. That all completely melted away when I started school and integrating with both sides of the community and realizing that humans are humans, good people are good people. It doesn't matter religion or, you know, political view or, or any of these things. They're really irrelevant. When you get down to it, these guys all wanted to play football just the same. They all wanted to play with their remote control cars. They wanted to go on bikes. These guys were just like me. And, you know, as I grew to a teenager, we studied, you know, your Shakespeare in our, in our classes and so on. And Romeo and Juliet, a uh, famous, obviously, play by Shakespeare, Stuck out to me when one of the guys in my class called me Mercutio. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with the play, but there are two sides, uh, Montague and Capulet. Sure. And there's a, a kind of a funny character in the middle, Mercutio, who's kind of alliances and friends with both. And for some reason that stuck out to me. And I realized that I can integrate with both these communities. I don't see the difference in race, color, creed, skin, color. It doesn't matter to me. And even being, you know, um, an immigrant, you know, or first generation born here, but I realized that none of those things matter. And I took those values with me as an adult, and it's been further explored as I travel 
And I'm more and more affirmed with this belief that humans are humans and good people are good people. And I guess that's the key takeaway for me. Why don't we back up? We've sort of captured a small part of your childhood. I'd like to explore that a little bit more. Let's go through the mundaneness, I'll call it, of childhood. What did a typical day of school look like for you? Oh, okay. So I had a lovely time at school. Let's say, I think you guys may call it elementary school. We call it primary school. Sure. I think I think on my first day or two, we would wrestle and fight randomly. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, this is like, is this like a prison school or something? You know, and and it was so interesting because we would all be assaulting each other in this first week of school. And I was thinking, okay, is this how it's going to be? Literally after those few days, those people who I wrestled with or who I fought with became some of my best friends. And that was just it. It was kind of like, that's what you do. It's water on the bridge, almost like a, you're testing each other as, as as children. And then the bonds became very, very deep. And the teachers were all fantastic. It helps that I was um, a straight A student. So I think it... Um, it allows you a little bit more flexibility with misbehaving and so on. Sure. But in general, you know, my mom would always drop us to school and it's not so far away from our home playing and those innocent times. It's some of the fondest memories I have. Oh, that's great. Take us through the next phase of your life, I guess. Uh, when you entered the teenage years, we call it high school. Uh, what was that like? And is there anything that stands out there? Sure, sure. So Secondary school, we call it a um, very chaotic period of any boy's life, you know, going through many changes. Sure. Also super exciting. I really felt like secondary school was almost as good, if not better than primary school, just because as a teenager, you're exploring, you're discovering a lot of things and you're excited about stuff. You start to, you know, pick up passions and identities. I was very lucky to find a lot of, I would call different groups of friends. So I had like a kind of a nerdy bunch of friends who were into computer games and Dungeons and Dragons. And then I had a more sporty group of friends who, you know, we had a football team and we used to play every week. So I really liked that kind of opening and discovery of interacting with lots of little pockets of people. First encountering girls obviously was very interesting for me. Like many teenage boys, and in general, yeah, it was good. I also like, from an education standpoint, it also opened me up to new avenues, which maybe weren't explored in primary school. You know, physics was always interesting to me. Mathematics became more challenging, which is what I needed. I felt more stimulated. And uh, just in general, getting up to no good, getting up to good, all of it was, all of it was very cool. It's great. Continuing on that path, and, and I'm, I'm trying to understand the foundation for uh, you becoming an entrepreneur and uh, leaning into sort of the technology space, but also just the entrepreneurial space. There's nothing particularly technologically advanced about a dessert brand, for example. What was it that led you to sort of your desire to become an entrepreneur and the pursuit of that? Okay, brilliant question. I think I've always been an entrepreneur. I've always liked money. I've always liked managing money, you know, finding a fiver on the street or a tenner on the street. It seemed to gravitate to me. I wouldn't let my mom put it in a safe jar for myself. I said, no, I'm managing it. I can hold it. I can keep it. You know, I just always liked it. So from 11 
to 12. I became a paper boy as I wanted to get some additional income. So I was always hardworking and industrious. I knew that I had an end game. I hated the job, by the way, but I was, I was, I was a great paper boy, but I didn't super enjoy it. However, I saved every single penny I had. And my friends would say, like, you've actually got like 10 pounds this week. Like, you should be buying like, you know, sweets and chocolates and whatever. And I said, no, no, I'm saving. I'm saving. I saved up to 220 pounds. It took me a long time, over a year and a half. But with that money, I had a plan. I had a plan, Matt. I bought a a CD writer, a 12-speed CD writer. And uh, that just opened up an amazing entrepreneurial avenue for me. At the time, CDs were the thing. Sure. That was the media of choice, let's say, the format of choice. And uh, my nearest competitor, who was a lovely guy, who's also an entrepreneur, he had a two-speed CD writer. And he was making copies of you know pop albums for his classmates for an extremely low price. I mean, he was a very fair guy and he was literally doing it for cost price, almost like a favor. But I 6 xed his production line with my 12-speed Plexter CD writer. He was simply not able to produce the CDs as fast as the demand. And so I ate up the market and that was my first experience as an entrepreneur and also, you know, seeking the monopoly in that space. Nice. And just understanding, you know, differences between cost and and price. So, so from a young age, I've always been like that. I sold a variety of other goods in school, comic books. When we got to 16, I was able to sell fireworks, you know, just random things that I thought were, I identified and spotted trends and kept on them. Now, what I must say, this is a double-parted question. I started computer science when I was 18, 19. I went to university in Queens, Belfast. I've always been interested in computer games. I'm fascinated with computers and technology in general, but I loved computer games. And I had this idea that I was going to become a programmer and start designing games, you know, like Hideo Kojima at Konami or Miyamoto at Nintendo. This was my idea. Within one or two weeks of my class, I was like, oh, shit, I'm not sure if I actually like this. <laughs> yeah, I realized that creating computer games, that is not actually what you're doing. You're you're stuck in this little small for loop and you're working on it for like hours and trying to fix it. And it's not debugging and it's coming. It's not compiling. It's coming up with errors. I realized after a few months that I actually hated programming. Right. And it's just quite hilarious. But I said to myself, you know what? I need to finish this. I'm going to finish this degree. And four grueling years later, I did. However, I found a passion for many other elements in technology. For example, multimedia systems. We designed a game. It was more of a web platform game. And that whole module was just fascinating to me. AI, another thing that I scored very highly on that spoke to me. So I'm very glad that I did that. I'm super involved in technology. I just won't be an out and out coder. And that's okay. Sure. Because I realized there's a lot of other aspects that are interesting and that maybe games designing and games coding isn't as cool or, or fun as it sounds. And uh, yeah, that, that's the technology side of things. I worked straight away for a, a big telecoms uh, firm. And they afforded me the option of traveling abroad. I worked in about 60 different countries, which is quite a lot. And uh, I just loved it. I love this marriage of technology and travel. 
it hit on two major kind of interests of mine. However, something was always a little bit lacking. I felt that maybe I'm not fulfilling my potential. After about 11 years, 10, 11 years, I decided to draw my attention to more entrepreneurial pursuits on the side. And that's where Swoon was born and later my uh, consulting company. That's great. Let's come back to Swoon and the consulting company in just a minute. You've referenced travel twice now uh, during this conversation as something that's sort of important to you. I'm curious, uh, what do you like about travel? What motivates you to go into these countries and what do you take from it? So again, I think it's one of those cases. I've always considered myself a little bit of an explorer or an adventurer. I have a risk appetite, but I also have a keen sense of wonder and discovery and really like to explore new ideas. I find that communities and new cultures have these ideas and it can really open your mind. There are various religious texts and many of them all follow same fundamental principles is what I discovered when I travel. But one of the things that they all say is, you know, seek knowledge from east to as far west as you can go. I do feel like every time you travel, your set of conditioning that may be templated from your residence or where you're born constantly gets disrupted. And what that does, it allows new neural pathways to develop new ways of thinking about life, new philosophies. And I think that allows for a really holistic attitude to your own personal growth. So that's one aspect I'm really, really fascinated by. And I mentioned explorer type. I did a personality test, you know, um, a couple of years ago. And it was very interesting to find that I'm an ENFP, which is called Explorer yeah. as the kind of, you know, archetype for it. So it was funny just to see that it aligned. I'm not sure about these things. You know, I hear about Jungian archetypes and all of that. But this one was freakishly accurate with the description with that respect. I, I just knew that was always for me. And the last couple of years have obviously been a little bit more challenging with respect to travel with COVID and everything. So <laughs> would you believe, Matt, I quit my job working with uh, Ericsson because it was just getting too, too, too intense with respect to the travel. Small story to give you an idea of how intensely we were traveling. I'd wake up on a Monday morning. My manager calls me. It's like 6 or 7 a.m. As I was mentioning to you earlier, I'm not an early riser. So I picked this up and I'm like, well, this guy better have something good to tell me here because this is this is really, really inconvenient. He's like, hey, can you jump on this call with Japan? So it's a Japanese customer was was on the call. He's like, and I go, all right, I'll get on. So I pull up my laptop and get on it. I'm on my bed. I'm bleary eyed. Anyway, I walk them through this um, potential architecture they want for a mobile enabling proxy. They basically say, okay, that's interesting. That's good. And the meeting ends after an hour. I shut the laptop and I immediately go back to sleep. I say, right, I'm going to catch some Z's again here. And uh, I get another call. I said, for God's sake, what's this now? Pick it up. And it's my manager again. And he's like, all right, thank you for that before. The meeting went really well. Can you do me a favor? And I said, oh, God, what's that now? And he goes, can you fly to Tokyo? And I said, uh, yeah, all right. We'll talk about it when I get in the office. He's like, no, no, no can you fly to Tokyo now? And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, can you fly to Tokyo today? And I said, it's, it's, at this point, it's like 8 a.m. in the morning. And, you know, I'm out at the weekend. I've been hanging out with my friends, partying. And then this um, now my manager's telling me, can you fly to Tokyo? So literally, 
few hours later, I'm on a flight to Tokyo from Dublin. So this is the kind of lifestyle I was living. And, you know, some of my friends and colleagues say, wow, that's really cool. That's very glamorous. And yeah, you know what? It was super exciting. It was very interesting. It was aligned with my kind of explorer type kind of Sinbad-esque conquest around the world philosophy at the time. But I'll tell you, Matt, it really burns you out. And after a while, you just need to put a halt into it. To give you an idea, there's roughly a three-year burnout in this engineering field role. Some of my friends, they quit before. Some of my colleagues, they stopped after five years. I did this for 10 years straight. I was loving it every second. But at that point, I said, right, I need to rest a little. And that came the birth of my own consulting company because I wanted to put the travel back in my control. So I didn't have to, you know, fly at the whims of clients and customers. I could be a bit more selective about where and when I wanted to go. And I just took a breather and a slight pause. When COVID came, everybody was forced to kind of be locked down. Right. And during that period, it reinvigorated my desire to travel again. So in these last couple of years, I'm back at it and um very excited to go to uh, Portugal this year and Peru, Barcelona as well, where I hope to celebrate the graduation of my MBA this year. So I'm back with that reinvigorated sense of wonder again, let's say, Matt. That's great. Maybe we'll turn to the consultancy that you've referenced that, that was launched after the excruciating travel, it sounds like, or at least the rapid pace of travel. Maybe give me a, a little bit of background on the consultancy, what you aim to do. And and then also, you know, how fearful were you to go from what would have been a, a fairly good corporate job with a recurring paycheck to all of a sudden uh, venturing out on your own? A lot of people were saying that I was crazy. Mostly my colleagues, my ex-colleagues, my friends, they said, look, you've got this amazing job. It's well-paid. As you mentioned, it's steady. It's recurring. You've got great holidays. You're always traveling around the world. And now you want to start your own company and compete for the same clients and do like, you're, you're nuts. You absolutely shouldn't be doing that. But I want to say there was a turning point you know, around 2016, 2017, I just had this transformative experience where I felt unbelievably courageous to go ahead with this decision. I can't quite pinpoint what it was, but I left my company on amicable terms. And at that time, I had established quite a large international network. Globally, I performed well for customers. So it's not like I was just doing this without careful consideration or feeling that I could attract business. I left my company in December, I think it was of 2017. I incorporated my consulting company and I was immediately back working with the same client that I just left in January of the following year. So it was less than 30 days. So it took a lot of the risk away, Matt, because I, I wasn't facing the adversity or the barrenness of fluidity of business. And that continued steadily for three or four years with some of my existing clients. And it allowed me the kind of opportunity to go and explore new clients without the kind of stress or worry or panic that we wouldn't be surviving. So that one was kind of a lot simpler than Swoon, for example, which was a lot rockier. And you could call it apples for apples because I was doing kind of similar work that I had been doing for 10 years previously. So a calculated risk, let's say, Matt. Well, let's move to the less calculated risk, it sounds like then, which is Swoon. 
Tell us a little bit about Swoon and, and what motivated you to, to get into that space. Um, yes, yeah, so it's a totally interesting and bizarre kind of set of circumstances as well. Myself and a few other colleagues at Ericsson, we were really interested in doing something on our own. And we often talked about doing something completely different outside of technology. As much as I love technology, when you're involved in it every second of every minute of every day for 15 years plus, you kind of want to just do something else. We often discussed and we talked about uh, like kebabs or takeaway or some food or something like that. And we said, no, that doesn't really suit us. And then we came up with other ideas. What about like, you know, a chain barber shops or something? And we said, you know what? No, none of these are really suiting. And the ideas kind of fell away by the wayside. Then. Interestingly, I mentioned to you before this conversation, I was really picking up a lot of beautiful desserts on my travels. I don't have much of a sweet tooth. Now I should say that I'm more of a savory guy. Like I eat beef jerky all the time, but I fell in love with Froyo. So frozen yogurt, and it was very popular in the Middle East, Asia and North America, but in Europe, it hadn't really taken off. And particularly in Ireland, and I said to you, it's kind of prehistoric a little bit. We're always like five, six years behind. And I noticed that there was no Froyo establishments in the south of Ireland. When I came back from Taiwan, I had found another dessert called Bubble Waffle, which was hugely popular in that region of Asia. And again, there no such product existed in Ireland. And from my travels in Brazil and South America, they had these amazing milkshakes. And again, this product was lacking. And so the concept and idea for Swoon was born in that we wanted to really bring innovative, interesting desserts to the Irish market. And it just fell together beautifully in that my business partner's cousin, who was also one of the founders, had started a frozen yogurt kind of events service. Okay. And he was doing this at events and, and so on. And he was getting really good traction and he had all the machines and he, he had understood the business and he understood the suppliers and all of that. But he didn't quite have the business acumen or the finance or the time to bring that into a, a retail store and, and sell online as well. So we three got together and Swoon was born. And after a lot of, let's say, troubles, getting location, getting the finances together, getting the machines and all oh, just one thing after another, we finally launched and it's first store in Cork on... Uh, Oliver Plunkett Street, right on the corner of the main street there. And we were just so immensely happy and proud when it launched. Not that it went smooth, but <laughs> just to get it over the line, that point was really good. That's great. It strikes me coming from a, a background in technology, and it sounds like you were client-facing and interacting regularly with people, but quite a fundamental shift in sort of social interaction. When you think of technology space and you, you referenced coding uh, not being particularly for you, but I think that's where many people gravitate to when they think of technology. And I think of something like a, the swoon that, that you've uh, went through as being highly socially interactive. How do you think that sort of those everyday interactions maybe have changed over the years, or how did you adjust to the two different framings? Wow, again, quite a unique and interesting question. In a professional corporate environment, B2B, you're largely dealing with other professionals, whether it's customers, suppliers, providers, telecom manufacturers, and there's a certain kind of decorum and kind of a rigidness almost in the approaches, but everything's very professional. 
Everything's very formal. And that's great. Actually, I, I like that. I like meetings, surprisingly. I like talking with clients. I like managing stakeholders. I am a people person, so I really like that. But it was night and day when we launched the retail stores in Swoon. It's public facing, direct to consumer. And this is where you get the real snapshot of dealing with real true society. Sure. And you get all walks of life. And I will say it's extremely challenging because you're going to get people who you like, people who you love, but you're also going to get people who really grind your gears. Being on one of the main corner streets of Cork City, which is the second biggest city in Ireland, You've heard the stereotypes and so on, but a lot of Irish people like to drink and that doesn't matter what time of day it is. So you could be dealing with drunken, disorderly behavior at 11 a.m. at your store. So you can imagine that's a little bit different from a corporate boardroom meeting in Stockholm or Tokyo. It's it's a little different, let's say. I'm very people orientated. I feel myself as a people person, so I don't mind to talk to people, but Definitely, I had to change my, or let's say raise my patience game when dealing with the outside public. Sure. Yeah. Good. Uh, Sticking with social interaction, it sounds like uh, this is something that's core to you. I'm curious, what's your online presence like? How do you feel about sort of social media? How has that changed the way that you interact or has it at all? Uh, Okay, There's there's a fascinating arc to that, Matt. So, We started with a social media platform here called Bebo, but it came out around the same time as MySpace. When I was a teenager, I was in a metal band. I was a vocalist in a metal band. And so we got all over MySpace and like we were saying, this is our ticket. I actually thought I was going to be a rock star by the age of 19 or 20. It didn't quite pan out that way. I have very traditional parents and, uh, you know, it was always like either you're doing engineering or medicine and, and that's kind of it. No and, metal uh, band option for you. Yeah, there was no band option. There was no band option, you know. <laughs> no. Uh, so so <laughs> I, I was like, I don't care. I'm going to I'm going to make this band so successful that it's going to make me more money and they'll see. Everyone will see. So. We were using MySpace quite a lot, and I thought that was great to get us exposure. I mean, we thought we were like, you know, a global band when we had like 100 followers or something like that, right? It's how delusional we were. But I loved it. I loved that fact that we could start reaching a global audience through that method. And Bebo, which was like a, a more simple version of Facebook, when Facebook came, it really took off. Instagram and TikTok, and these ones are a little bit past that. But during Facebook era, and when I was traveling in my early 20s to mid 20s, when I first started making a bit of money and working abroad, I was constantly posting and really loved the attention and loved like interacting with people, commenting on people's posts. And I was safe to say I was pretty addicted almost, you know? And I think a lot of people were at the time. A lot of my friends and colleagues, we were all obsessed with it. We were very addicted in sharing our life, traveling abroad, food we were eating, stupid stuff, sure. and you know, ripping on each other, commenting on each other. And it just opened this whole new way to communicate and interact with people. My sister at the time was living in Australia with my nieces, and this allowed us to share you know, photographs with each other and remain in contact. So I thought it was a net good. I thought it was really, really positive, a little bit different from the viewpoint shared about the toxicity of some of these platforms in recent years. But one thing I will say is that I felt like it was a little bit of a dual life. You know, you have this virtual persona 
that you're sharing with people, but it's not exactly indicative or reflective or 100% accurate of your waking life, you know, of your actual life. So over the years, I just felt less and less interested in it. I think it was like a little bit shallow, a little bit narcissistic, you know, as a young man and enjoyed sharing these things. But as I grew older, I just realized, what the heck am I doing? And I've kind of gone like full reverse. I'm almost like hermit now with respect to social media. I don't post that much or if at all. I'm rarely on it. I find it a little bit draining for me. Even my LinkedIn, my LinkedIn is terrible. Like it hasn't, it hasn't been updated. It doesn't show any of the things I've done. I constantly get told by colleagues and business partners, at least put this in or at least say that. Like, you know, I'm like, oh, well, what's the point? The people that matter to you know about you and the rest is really just for show. And I've become less about that and more about substance as I've got older. It took a while to finally register with me, but I'm glad I matured a little uh, during this period. Just still play? Or are you still involved in a band at all? Um, that's a good question as well. So I still sing. I still play just for fun, just for hobby. But um, sure. I'm thinking, you know, we're going to bring the band back. Maybe may, watch this space five or six years. Maybe we have like a reunion tour or something like that. <laughs> Nice. And, and what, what instruments do you play? Go for it. I would call myself a bad guitar player. I wouldn't say I'm a great guitar player. Okay. My other friends said this. Yeah, because I'm an all right guitar player. I did a little bit of bass, a tiny bit of drums in some of the acts. I've been involved in a couple of musical projects from an early age. My favorite genre is actually heavy metal. I love metal music. I, I like aggressive music in general. People find that surprising sometimes because I'm quite a peaceful and calm guy, but I just really like the the violence and the speed and the tempo and the breakdowns of music like metal and techno, some rap even. So I really like those styles. And as a result, I collaborated with different artists in different capacities, but vocals is generally my favorite thing. I like to write lyrics. I like to write poetry. And I like to express myself that way. And I feel in metal, you have this really visceral kind of engagement with the audience when you're singing. Sure. And uh, if done in a healthy way, you can actually make some pretty cool sounds without totally destroying your throat either. So that's always good. Very good. To sort of go back to sort of the entrepreneurial aspect of you, Gafor, I'm reflecting on the comment you made early in the conversation that you seem to find money lying on the street. You manage your own money. I'm curious. When did you start recognizing uh, sort of wealth? I mean, it's not something that you necessarily understand as a child. And how does that shape your desires for the accumulation of wealth, pursuit of wealth, whatever that is? Okay, this is kind of a funny story. I'm not even sure if I should share, but it's, it's good. So as a typical spoiled brat child, I always wanted new toys, right? Sure. And uh God bless my mom. She did her best to provide for me and get us all the toys we want, but it's, it's never enough. I remember asking her, I wanted this like, uh, it's like a GI Joe kind of figure. And I had, I had plenty. I didn't need another one. I remember saying to her, no, I want this. I want that. And I want that. And she says, no, no, we can't get it. I can't, we can't get it. And I says, why, why can't we get it? So I started doing the kind of, let's get to the bottom of this and try to fix this. How do I get this GI Joe? So I asked her, why can't I get it? Why can't I get it? And she says, oh, because we need to purchase it when we don't have to, we can't purchase it. I said, well, how do we purchase it? And she says, well, I need, mom needs to write a check. And I say, check. Okay, so what's a check? Let's get a check then. She says, well, a check's part of a checkbook. 
And with the checkbook, you can then write things. And I says, hold on a second here. This was a very important penny drop moment. I says, right. So to get the action figure, what I want, actually, I don't want that. What I want is that book, that checkbook that she's talking about. You magically write something on it and you just give that to them and they give you the toy. So I said, forget the toys. I need to focus all my attention on this book, this checkbook. And so I said, all right, okay, how do I get the checkbook? I want a checkbook. And she says, well, you need to open a bank account, then you can get a checkbook. So this just at a very early age sparked my curiosity into understanding the fundamental underlying principle of getting toys is actually, you know, first having the checkbook or the bank account or the money to fund that. So interestingly, I had that from a young age. And like I said, I seem to attract money. And when I had it, I always was extremely grateful for it because, as I said, we lived quite modestly growing up in Northern Ireland. And I always remember the value, never to use it frivolously, let's say. I found two pounds. Again, uh, this is one of these things on, on the street. And my sisters used to often walk me to the local video store where we would rent VHSs. So you'll you'll remember that as well, Matt, some of our younger audience. Uh, sure, of course. Maybe beyond that. And I was super interested in Kung Fu movies. I was allowed to watch them at that age. That was totally fine. So my sisters would take me down and I would rent like, you know, Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, Jet Li movies and just watch them over and over and over again. You know, some of these videotapes to rent were like, you know, one pounds, 52 pounds. And I really appreciated that my sisters would take their time out of their day and their funds. They were just getting their normal pocket money and help me to rent these videos. To rank back to the story, I lost that two pounds. I said that I would keep it. I said that I would hold it safe despite my sisters and mother's protestations that they would, you know, keep it and, and look after it for me. And I had this elaborate place where I like put it was like sandwiched underneath my mattress and a little cloth, everything. And I lost it. I was just so devastated. You know, eventually my mom find out she's seen that I was all red faced and she was asking me what I'd done with it. And I said, I just broke down into tears and I said, I couldn't find it. I lost it. I'm really sorry. And she said, that's okay, son, but you really need to be careful and you need to understand that people work hard for this. It was easily found for you, but you can see how easily it's lost. And I think this message stuck with me and really made me realize, okay, it's great to have money and so on, but you should absolutely be appreciative of it and treat it with the care and respect. And I think that's good values to take even into my adult life. Undoubtedly. One thing that we haven't talked about and is somewhat unusual, at least from the North American perspective, I'll say, is uh, one of seven children. I mean, that's uh, quite a large family. Uh, you said you were second youngest of the seven. Tell me what influence your siblings had on you. Yeah, a lot of influence. So being the second youngest, and this is going to even sound crazier, a seven is quite a large family. It isn't uncommon in Ireland during that period to have large families, but it's, you know, you're talking one or two children max these days. Right. I had four older sisters and an older brother and a younger brother. Those four older sisters acted like four additional mothers for me. <laughs> and yeah, so I was really, really taken care of and looked after and doted upon by my four older sisters. They did everything for me. My immediate sister and immediate brother, youngest brother and my sister just above me by only a few years, we're all quite close in terms of age generation. 
then the four older siblings beyond that are a little bit older. For example, my eldest brother is over 20 years senior of my youngest brother. So there's quite a big age gap. But what I would say is that us youngest three really were given everything. We were totally spoiled. Like we went to Disneyland, we had a Disneyland childhood and all the toys we wanted. And thank God I didn't turn into a complete spoiled brat. But what I took from it though, was how caring and nurturing my eldest four were for us youngest three. Maybe they didn't have the same opportunities and given the same, you know, attention that we had, but they never, ever once were jealous. They never, ever once were unsupportive. They just like treated us like kings, like royalty. And that stuck out with me. And, you know, now that I'm, you know, thankfully I'm in a good position, I really return the favor to my my older four sisters. Like I say, they're almost like extra moms at this point. And like, I try to spoil them as often as I can. You say, oh, you want this handbag or do you want to go on this trip or something like that? And I feel it's the least they could do because they really sacrificed a lot for the growth and health of my well-being as a kid. Like, it's maybe why I got so much confidence. You know, they were constantly praising me and boosting my self-esteem without letting me get too carried away. Or they'd be straight away first people to tell me, if I was acting rude or arrogant or something like that. And I think it's helped me even with females in my life, whether it's coworkers or whether it's relationships or whether it's with my aunties, you know, understanding the care that my sisters want or how to talk to women, how to make them laugh and how to make sure they feel comfortable. And these kinds of things that you pick up subconsciously just from having, you know, like four mothering hens in addition to your own mother kind of raising you. Just to, I guess, extend the thought a little bit, you you started by saying that your father came to Northern Ireland from Saudi Arabia and the uniqueness of your name, uh, Gafur, at the beginning of the conversation. I'm curious about race and ethnicity and what impact that had, both, I guess, as your childhood and also maybe have you changed your perception on race and ethnicity? Wow, that's a, that's a really deep one. I think it has. I think it's both given me everything and also helped me to understand others. To go back to the origins on my mother's side and, you know, on the far side of my father's heritage is actually of Patan origin, which is a mountainous northern region in Afghanistan. It's quite an interesting tale about our set of circumstances. You could call it like sliding doors. Patan lineage is kind of known as the kind of lions of Afghanistan. It's about bravery. It's about courage. It's a little bit of about warrior spirit. This value has largely been sacred and beloved within our family trust. We want to show this to our children and so on. But one example I'd like to share, which really I found a very touching story. You know, my grandfather is his life is well documented, and he was a very strong-minded man and have good values and very respectful and and all of that. But it's my grandmother's story I'd like to share because I feel this is a really true depiction of that warrior spirit. Her parents were killed in a bomb accident or a bomb in her village. And this is in Afghanistan many, many years ago. She was, I think, five or six years old at the time, but she had a younger brother who was a baby. My grandmother in order to survive, she would take her younger brother in her arms 
and feed him milk from a goat that she found. And this is resourcefulness. This is, you know, thinking outside the box. And her living in a cave with her younger brother, looking for food, helping him to survive. This, for me, is a real depiction of resiliency. As I said, it's often talked about that the males are lions in the Patan lineage, but I actually think, you know, in this case, the lionesses in my life, be it with my grandmother or my mother, show true resiliency and true warrior spirit. I think that is deep in my blood. You know, obviously growing up in Northern Ireland as an immigrant, as an ethnic minority, at a time which there was a lot of prejudice, a lot of hatred, and quite a bit of racism. I think it's made me the character I am today. I wasn't exposed to it as much as my elder siblings, but I still feel that warrior spirit that is so beautifully presented by my grandmother in that story and that resiliency and ability to not only survive, which is what she did and is what my mother did and what my father did, but to prosper as well and to really grow and enjoy life and make your mark on it. And I feel like that, although growing up in Northern Ireland, which technically is UK, but we also often associate with Irish as well. And I've picked up a lot of that from my local communities, but in my blood and in my heart, I definitely hold deep my ancestral roots. I can't think of a better, more touching place to end. But before we do that, one last question for you. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share? This is always a tricky one. I probably should prepare for that. Um, You know what, Matt? (laughs) Perhaps I could share that one thing about me that maybe people don't know is that I'm extremely family orientated. You know, people see me like very professional, very work orientated, always on the go. He's always got his finger on the pulse. I say I'm lazy. People say I'm not. But what I mean by that is I really think that downtime is important and spending time with family is important. Spending, doing things that you love, that's what gives me my energy. People say, oh, you're very driven. You're very ambitious. But I actually think it is because I make time for the other things. And people don't believe me that I do. But I really, really do. Meditation is a hugely important aspect of my life. I meditate each and every day if I can. I think everybody should take 15 minutes, whatever way you want to call it, silence, prayer, meditation, it doesn't matter, but it's just taking that time to yourself each day and do something you love every day and spend time with people you love every day because life is short, careers come and go, money comes and go, but I feel that that connection and love you have with other people, that's something eternal and priceless you can't put into words. And that's probably an aspect of myself I'd like to share that I think people often don't really get an insight to. That's wonderful, Gafur. And at Audio Life, the purpose of this whole conversation is to tell your story a little bit differently, uncover how the world around you influenced you as a person. And I started this episode by giving you a brief introduction. If I could redo it in concluding, I would say not just an entrepreneur, not just a uh, MBA candidate, but an explorer, a heavy metal enthusiast, and really some really touching stories uh, that we ended with before. So thank you uh, very much for the time. It was a great joy. Thank you so much, Matt. It was a great interview. And thanks for having me on Audio Life.